0: Now, I would like to take you back about 750 or 760 years before Christ. And there are two kingdoms for God's people. There's a northern kingdom, and then there's a southern kingdom, and they have been divided. And the book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet, is speaking to the northern kingdom up here. And it is a time of tremendous prosperity, (laughs) In fact, Jeroboam is is presently reigning, and they have not experienced such prosperity since the days of Solomon. And so trading is going on, and militarily they're very, very secure. People are buying and selling, they have plenty of everything, and they're just living their lives, unfortunately, many of them are living their lives for themselves. And in the midst of this, there's this prophet by the name of Hosea, And I want you to picture uh, with me, if you would, a wedding. I've married somewhere around 75 or 100 couples, something like that. And usually what happens, if this is the front of the, the church or the sanctuary or wherever it might be held, all of a sudden the bride appears. Now I want you to picture this. This is Hosea, and Hosea is the groom. And the door opens up, and the people turn around to see, and they're looking for someone that's going to be dressed in white, but as the door opens, there's this bride that's dressed in black. And she marches on up uh, opposite Hosea, and Hosea looks at her, her name is Gomer, and Hosea says something like this. I, Hosea, take you, Gomer, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow. And then he hesitates for a moment, and then he says, in adultery and prostitution. I so pledge my love to you, Gomer. And the people in the audience are are, uh, shocked. They're bewildered. And the wedding takes place. And this is the picture that you have in the book of Hosea. Because if you open your Bibles there to the very first chapter, look at what it says here in the very first verse. And I want us to see just five aspects of the lover and the loved. And the first is the providential love of God. Look at the first verse of what it says. There you have your Bible. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Miri during the days of Uzziah. This is a historical account. This is is not some fiction. John, Ahaz, Ezekiah the son kings of Judah and during the days of Jeroboam the son of Josiah king of Israel. Then the Lord spoke through Hosea and the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land, and that is the people in the land, people like you, people like me, commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went And he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibdin, and she conceived and bore him a son. Let me ask you who have been married, uh, if you knew ahead of time that after five, ten, whatever years, your husband, your wife was going to commit adultery, would you still have married them? Knowing ahead of time? Those of you that have children, um, maybe they're under the age of 15, if you knew at 25 that they're going to forsake you, they're going to throw away everything that you believe, all your values, all your convictions, turn their back on you, want nothing to do with the family anymore, would you still have them? So God asked Gomer, or he asked Hosea to go and to marry this woman. That's the providential love of God. It means that providence has to do with the fact that God sees to things ahead of time. And God saw in his providence, he saw you, he saw me here living in 2018, the beginning of September. He knew you before you were born, he knows the days of your life. When as yet there wasn't even one of them, the hairs on your head, the tears that he has in a bottle. He knows everything intimately uh, about you. He knows your failings, he knows your habits, he knows your struggles, he knows your unfaithfulness, and he still took you. And Hosea takes Gomer in the midst of all that's going to happen and going to take place. And that's how God took you and me. When we were enemies, he made us his friends. When we were sinners, he turned us into saints. When we were outcasts, he made us his very beloved children. You see, we look at this and say, man, that's that's, that's terrible to go and marry someone like that. But you know what? Such were some of us. You can read in 1 Corinthians, in fact, this is what it says, just listen very, very carefully, very, very quickly. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, "...do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." Such were some of you. Such were some of us. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. I hope you're thankful, friends, that God in his providence decided to love you when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, where there was no movement, and he began to woo you and drew you, and you saw your sin, And you saw the holy God and you saw the wonderful Savior who poured out his life, his blood, so that you could be set free from the law of sin and of death. His providential love. Here's the second thing I'd like for us to look at this morning very quickly. And it's the confronting love of God. August 30th, my wife hit, and I had 54 uh, years of marriage. Do you think we've had a few confrontations in 54 years?
1: No, oh, just a few. I, Never.
0: No. <laughs> no, God confronts us, doesn't he? Look, if you would, in chapter 2, verse 3. There are three children that are, that are named here. I don't have time to get, to get into it. But uh, notice what it says here. Uh, say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, Contend with your mother. Here are the children contending with the mother. For she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked. And expose her on the day when she was born. And so God in his love and his mercy, when you tend to wander, when you tend to go astray, he confronts us with our sinfulness, with our waywardness, with our apathy, apathy, just like you confront your little ones when they were little or when they're teenagers. When you see them straying and wandering And you know that tragedy is just around the corner for them. And you try as best you can to warn them. And then when they do make those mistakes and they do fall into those pits and they are in those prisons, you try your best to try to bail them out, to get their attention, to bring them back. And that's what God does in your life in my life. And sometimes we lose our joy and we lose our peace and we lose our patience. And we begin to wonder now what's, what's happened, what's, what's gone wrong. Maybe we've wandered. You see, what's happened in this northern kingdom now is they become very, very proud. And they're, they're depending on their trade agreements, and they're depending upon their military, and they're all prospering, and things are going well. And as Tony said, you cannot serve two masters, it's an impossibility. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. Jesus wants to be the one who you adore. The object of your affection. He wants to be the apple of your eye. That he would be more precious than silver. More costly than gold. He's more beautiful than the, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in this life. And so he confronts us. And when we wander, the third thing I want you to see is the alluring love of God. Look at chapter 2. You have your Bible there. Look at verses 14 and 15. Gomer now has gone after all these lovers. She's involved in prostitution, she's involved in adultery, and she's had children. Those children are not even a Hosea's. They're from some lover she maybe doesn't even know. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness, I will speak kindly to her, then I will give her vineyards, and the valley of acorn is the door of hope. She will sing. And you come to chapter 2, look at what it says. Let's say this all together. The verses are there. Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. She's gone off, she's committed all this hard tree. and what does uh, Hosea do? He goes and he buys her right out of the slave market for himself, takes her back, allures her again. You see, all of us are always, we we don't always walk the straight and narrow, do we? Hello. We get off course. Worldliness grabs us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. All that is in the world, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away, and all the lust thereof. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so he confronts us, and then he allures us back again. Just like your children when they they wander, if they come back, if they repent. You know, we always look at the word lost, L-O-S-T, as if it's somebody who's out there somewhere. But you see, you can be a Christian and be lost. There's the lost sheep. The shepherd, that was his sheep. There was the lost coin. And there was the lost son. They had just wandered away. And sometimes that's what happens to us. We, We wander away. And God lets us go. And what we find out there is emptiness. And futility. And frustration. And bondage. And God wants us... He's all the time looking for us, hunting us down like the woman for the coin and like the shepherd for the sheep, like the father waiting for the son, looking every single day, and when he sees him, he doesn't go like this. No, he runs and he hugs and he kisses and he kills the fatted calf and brings him back because, you see, he's the lover, and we're the love. And he loves you with an everlasting love, as our brother and those were singing. Here in the love of Christ I what? Stand. I stand. Or you sit. Then you have have chapters 1 to 3. It's about Hosea loving Gomer. In chapters 4 through 13... You have prophetic prophecy of what's going to happen to this northern kingdom. They are going to be no more. And Hosea makes one prophecy after another, after another, after another. I call it the disciplinary love of God. Because you see, every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat. It's appointed for you to die one time, there's no reincarnation, and then the judgment, then you stand before God. Even as Christians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, when all of our works and everything that we've done will be tried by fire. And so, God is speaking in this tremendous time of prosperity about there's a train coming down the track. It's headed right towards you. It's not very far away. It's going to come. It's going to happen. And so it happened and the Assyrians come in and they destroy completely this whole northern kingdom. They are no more. Their history. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 6. This is what it says. As they passed through their flock, they became satisfied. See, it's easy for us to get satisfied with the trinkets and the gloss and the glitter of this world. Because those things are alluring. Sometimes they have four wheels. (laughs) And being satisfied, notice what happened. Their heart became proud. That is always our undoing. Your undoing and my undoing is pride. Pride always comes before the fall, before adultery, before fornication, before whatever you, you people take things, whatever it might be. Pride is always there. That's the root, and then there's the fruit. They became proud. What happens when you become proud? Then you forget God. You forget your lover. You forget the one who saved you. So then what will God do? So I will be like a lion to them. You know something about lions. You've been to the game parks. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. And I will tear open their chests. That's what animals do. And God, through Hosea here, is telling God's people, warning them ahead of time this is what's going to happen. And when those Assyrians came, that's exactly what they did. They ripped open chests, they took the babies right out from their mothers. It's amazing what humans can do to humans. And it's going on today. And so God confronts us and he disciplines us in our love. In his love. And here's the last thing I want you to look at as it relates to Hosea. And this is the covenantal love of God. That God makes a covenant. As Hosea stood here and he says to Gomer, I, Hosea, take you, Gomer. I so commit my love. He He made a commitment. always come back. Maybe you've wandered. Maybe your heart isn't right. Maybe like Jesus comes to you and says, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Do you you really love me? Are you just kind of fond of me? Do you really love me? Me? Your Savior? Your Lord? That's all he wants from you and me is our love. Yeah, he can, maybe some money. Okay, that shows where our heart is. But, but he wants our love. He wants our affection. So so look at what it says. Look at, this is chapter 6, verse 1. This is a very famous verse, by the way, in the book of Isaiah. Come. That's an invitation. Let us return to the Lord, to Yahweh, to this one who made these covenants. He made covenants with Noah. He made covenant with Moses he made covenant with Abraham he made covenants with David and he doesn't break them We break them He doesn't He's torn us but he'll heal us He's wounded us he'll bandage us And then you come to chapter 14 and the last chapter of this book has to do with hope it has to do with restoration returnal Israel to the Lord your God I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I've traveled in 50 some countries around the world and one of the things that saddens me when God's people is, is that we don't at deeper levels understand the faithfulness and the love and the patience and the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. It is... Not hidden; it's in plain view. Now, as I close today, I want you to turn in your Bible to the Book of Romans, because you say, "Oh, Glenn, this is Old Testament stuff." Now, yeah, God loved uh, Israel, and God loved the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, but what about what about little old me? In Romans chapter eight, Paul. What I, I call five unanswerable questions. Most of us know Romans 8:28. God causes what? All? How many things? All things. All things? All things. to work together for good, to those who. To, love to those who love God. There's a qualifier to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, if you go on and you look here, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. If you want to know what God is up to in your life, is that He's working to conform you to be like Jesus. So that he would be the firstborn. Those whom he predestined he also called. Those he called he also justified. Those he justified he also glorified. Those are all past tense. That's what God has done. You know that that I'm already glorified. I'm just not there yet. But it's a done deal. I have been justified past tense. Because of what Christ has done for you and for me. And so Paul in this chapter is trying to assure his people to build confidence in them. The chapter begins, there's no condemnation, zippo, zero, nada, nothing for those that are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, Christ did. For you and for me now look at what it says here. in <coughs> Verse 31. Here, here's the first question. There's five unanswerables. What then shall we say to these things? This is what God has done for you when you were a sinner, when you were lost, when you were wayward. He called you. He wooed you. He saved you. He redeemed you. He reconciled you. Now that you're his, what's he going to be like towards you? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? That's an unanswered. <laughs> if God's for us, who can be against us? Well, you say, well, there, there, there could be some others. There could be, you know, the enemies. could be some other people. It could be, uh, I, I could be against myself. But, but look. See, God isn't, isn't neutral towards His creation, it's towards people. If He did this when we were sinners, now that we're His, what's He going to do for us? He's for us. People want to know is there a God? And if there is a God, is He for me or is He against me? He, He's for you, He's for me. I'm for my son. I'm for my daughter. My goodness, I was there when they were born. I held them right after they came out of my wife's womb. They're part me, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's the second one. Here's the second question. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also now freely give us all things? Here's a second question that you have. Is God going to withhold now good things from us? If he died for you and you're a sinner, And now that you're his, do you think he's going to withhold from you? No. But you know what he won't withhold? He won't withhold the trials and the struggles and the dungeons and the darkness in the valleys because those things help conform you to the image of his son my life verse is this Psalm 84 the Lord God is a sun and a shield the Lord gives grace and glory no good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. when I coached basketball for 30 years I never withheld wind sprints at the end of practice from my boys <laughs> now you run I'm, we're tired run I'll run with you I always ran with my players. That's a good thing. <laughs> because when you come down to the last five minutes of a basketball game, if the other team is in better shape than we are, that's going to be on me. And that ain't going to happen, guys, so run. I'm not going to withhold. Is a good thing. We need these things to keep us close to him. And so some of those fiery trials that come upon you for your testing, they they keep you close. Here's a third thing. (coughs) Well, I missed a couple of points here as I was going through. When we talk about about, uh, God confronting us in our sin, at the cross, the naked truth is staring you and I down, forcing you to stop pretending and to own up to the truth. If you've got anything in your life That the Holy Spirit points out that's not right. Stop pretending. He knows everything about you. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this recently, I came across in in light of repentance. He says, Repentance is the discovery of sin. It's not just a discovery, it's the mourning that we've committed it. You fess up in your marriage. I'm wrong, I'm sorry for this and this and this. And a resolution to forsake it. It is in fact a change of a a deep conviction and practical character which make a man or woman love what he or she once hated and hate what he or she once loved. That is a change of heart. That's when you come to Christ and you take the first step of obedience and you're baptized and you make a public declaration of your faith. And these are the questions. And if God is for us, who's going to be against Him? Second question. Will God withhold good things? No. Third question. Who can successfully accuse us before God? Look what it says. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. now the enemy can come and put all these doubts in your mind. People can come and condemn you. You can condemn yourself, as it says in 1 John. Even if our hearts, our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. But God isn't accusing you. No one can successfully accuse us before God. He's the one who's justified us. You think he's going to start accusing? <laughs> no, he's done this for you. He's made us right in his sight. Here's the fifth question Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus, he uses a little Christology here. Christ Jesus, he who died, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who also. <laughs> intercedes for us. Do you know that that's the present ministry of Jesus is praying for Craig and praying for Glenn? He knows how we're prone to wander. Roberts and Miller are prone to wander. <laughs> and Jesus is praying, Lord, help that poor man, Roberts. Help that old sinner, Miller. Huh? You know, the enemy may condemn, but we have an advocate He's called, according to 1 John, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a defense attorney par excellence. So when the enemy comes, I've got a defense attorney. I've got somebody interceding. That's the present ministry of Jesus, our high priest. Don't forget his present ministry for you. That's where you go. You don't go back to the cross. You go to the throne because that's where Jesus is. Here's the last one. Who can ever separate us from the love of God? Oh, does God love me? I wonder. It's it's in plain view. If you would open it up every day, if you wouldn't just live by bread alone, but by every word or every rhema, specific thing that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, you need rhemas for your life for what you're going through. you got to tuck them away. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema, Jesus said to Satan. I read it this morning in my quiet time, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he says, I will worship God alone. And when Satan heard alone, the devil left him. You love him solely? What's going to separate you? Tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Naked? No. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm convinced. Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor other creative thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing going to separate my love from my daughter, Kelly, who's 48, my son, Glenn, who's 46. Nothing. My son is my best male friend in all the world. I love that boy. I love that girl. Nothing. Going to separate Pop's love for those two. I want you to stand. I'd like for you to, to, uh, to pray with me. I'm not going to have you pray out loud, but I will say something, I will do it out loud, but, but if it expresses desire in your heart, <clears throat> then you just say it prayerfully to the lover of your soul. I, Glenn, you can have your name. Take you afresh, Lord Jesus, to be my lawful wedded husband, to have it to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for joy and sorrows, in tribulations and struggles, in dark dungeons and blind alleys. I, so, Lord Jesus, pledge afresh my love and devotion to you. To you, the lover of my soul. The redeemer of my life. I recommit myself to you today as my bride Father you know every person here today you know their thoughts before they think them you know their deeds before they do them you know their attitudes their motivations, everything about them. You know the worst about each one of us, and you're not disillusioned. And if you are for us, and you are, then what can be against us? You who did not spare your own son but delivered him up when we were enemies and rebellious and ungodly and strangers and outcasts, how will you not now freely give us all things? And I ask for my brothers and sisters here that your love, which is, should not be a stranger to us. It's not hidden. It's actually in plain view on every page of the book. In every page of the Bible, would you help each one of us each day to behold you in the scriptures as in a mirror, and then we will be changed from one degree of glory into another by you, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, into your very likeness, you, the one who is the lover, and we who are the beloved all. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name.